do we consider the preeminence of Christ in our life? See, that's why we use this phrase here at Shoreline. It's all about Jesus. That's not just something catchy that we want to copyright and put on t-shirts and bumper stickers. That's a way of life. Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you're listening to a series in John called Jesus Is. Today, we look at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, and a message called Jesus Is the Lamb. Hope you enjoy it. John chapter 1, I want us to start our time together today with a, a very elementary question, a very beginner question. This is, kind of, uh, this is kind of the kindergarten level question, but sometimes I think we can get so high and lofty in our study that we don't bring the, what, what we say, we, we don't bring the cookies down to the bottom shelf. And sometimes we just need to start with the basics with something very elementary, something very simple. Uh, the beginning of every season, the famous coach uh, Lombardi uh, of Green Bay Packers, right? He would uh, walk into the locker room with these elite uh, experienced, expert, professional uh, football players, and he would hold up a football and he would just say, gentlemen, this is a football. He's saying that at the start of every season as a way to kind of say, let's reset, let's restart, and just begin at the very basic level. Do we understand the very rudimentary, elementary things of this sport? And so I want to do that this morning. I want to just ask a very simple question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I want you to think about how you would answer this question if someone were to ask you this later today at lunch as you leave service and go to grab a bite to eat, what would you answer this question if someone asked you, why did Jesus come from heaven to earth? Why did Jesus come to earth? What would your response be? Why? Uh, now, we could give the church answer, right, the Sunday school answer, but what would you respond to that uh, question? There's uh, some that would say, well, Jesus came, the reason Jesus came was to show us uh, an example. He came to give us an example of love and of service. He loved uh, the downtrodden and the poor, and he healed those who were misfortunate, and he came to kind of rebuke his enemies, those who uh, were trusting in self-righteous, uh, hypocritical exterior religion and not an interior or, or internal relationship with uh, God. And so Jesus is our example, and that's why he came from heaven to earth. And I, I would say, okay, well, I don't totally disagree with you. Jesus is, of course, a shining example of love and of grace and of compassion. And he's the living embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. Certainly Jesus, when he says, turn the other cheek, he literally turned the other cheek as he was struck by those who persecuted him. A great example for us, but that's not all he is. He's so much more than that, right? He's, more, he's so much more than that. Some might say, well, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to show us the Father. He came to uh, kind of display. See, the Father's transcendent, and we can't know who the Father is and see him and live. And so he sent his Son to be the express image of the invisible God. So when we see Jesus, we see the Father. And I would say, you're, you're not wrong. Jesus certainly said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and, uh, and I am, you know, one with the Father. Uh, and, and certainly, Jesus came to exegete or to, to draw out the, the person and work of the first person of the Trinity, Yahweh, the Father. Certainly, yes, he came to show us the Father. But he has done so much more than that. That's not all that he came to do. And so when we think about this for a minute, uh, Jesus didn't come just to show us an example worthy of following. He didn't come just to show us the Father. 
His life had a very significant and very specific purpose. And Paul tells Timothy within the first 15 verses of his first letter to him, 1 Timothy 1.15, on the screen, here's what Paul says, the reason Jesus came. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that, here it is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, someone I heard recently said, Paul died, so that title's up for grabs. The, the chief of sinners. That's up for grabs if anyone wants that here today. Why did Jesus come? He came to save us from our sin. Can I get an amen? Last week, we kind of had a part one of this idea where, uh, if you missed it, we looked at verses um, 19 through 28, and we saw a picture of Jesus, the, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And we saw that we all want to be saved from something. And the most important thing we're saved from is from uh, our sin, uh, a spiritual salvation. But this week, we look kind of at part two, how Jesus saves us. How does he save? He becomes the sacrifice in our place. Now, that may seem rudimentary, just sang songs about that, very rudimentary for us here in 2018. But listen, this was revolutionary when it was first uttered uh, to the, the first century hearers, okay? The people who first heard that, um, we find in our text today, the very first idea of the concept of the gospel, the good news being pronounced publicly, uh, uh, that Jesus would come and die for our sin. And so today we read about John the Baptizer's proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb. Who is Jesus? Our series Jesus is today, we're going to look at Jesus is the Lamb. He's the Lamb. And so there's only five verses to cover today, and I was kind of blown away this week. It was a lot of study, a lot of preparation, and I, I was kind of like surprised. Like I thought there was only five verses. It would be a very short time of study. It took forever to kind of plod through the, uh, the, the message the, uh, this week. So a uh, lot to dive into. We're going to break the passage down this way. Look on the screen. These three, if you're taking note, are how we're going to outline this section. We're going to see that John will recognize the lamb, verse 29, the lamb recognized. And then we're going to see in verse 30, the lamb revered, the lamb revered. And then we'll see how the lamb has been revealed to John and to Israel and to us in verses 31 through 34. So let's look at verse 29 and let's first see the lamb recognized. Look with me at verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you should have a an exclamation point after behold and after the sentence. This is a proclamation. He's not kind of saying, eh, behold, the Lamb of God. No, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But notice with me, we, we read over it quickly, that those first three words, the next day. Okay, John the Apostle's writing this, and he tells us that this happened the day after yesterday. So what happened yesterday? Uh, well, we learned last week, John the baptizer or Baptist was baptizing Jews in the Jordan River for the cleansing of repentance and for faith in God. And as a group, they're acknowledging uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, and I want to help prepare the way uh, in my heart for the coming Messiah. And so some of the priests and Levites from Jerusalem were sent by the Pharisees to come and question John and try to identify, who are you? Who are you, John? And so last week, if you missed it, we learned about identity. You need to go back and listen to our podcast, catch that. Um, 
definitely want to understand who we are in light of who Jesus is. And so John says, this is who I'm not, and this is who I am. And so verse 29 tells us that this is the very next day. So that was yesterday, here's today. So apparently Jesus starts walking towards John, uh, and John tells everyone who's come to be baptized or come to listen and find out who he is or who's just kind of standing nearby, he draws all the crowd's attention. And maybe he pointed, lots of uh, medieval uh, artwork shows John pointing at a lamb. Maybe that's what happened. But he begins to uh, tell them they need to behold Jesus. Now, there is so much in John's sentence that we need to unpack. Like I told you, hours of study, there are pages and chapters and whole books written just on verse 29. So there's a lot here. One pastor said the entire message of the Bible is summed up in that one title, the Lamb of God. Uh, but what does it mean? What does it mean? We understand on this side of the cross what it means, the Lamb of God. We get it. We understand it. But what did it mean? What did it mean to the first century hearers who were listening to John point at Jesus and say, there's the Lamb of God. When we look through the Bible and at first century Jewish culture, there's a lot of speculative lambs that John could have been referring to. There's a lot of lambs. Now, we have to, we have to come, you got to come with me this morning. Can we do this? You got to come with me a little bit. I got to take you on a journey to understand this because raise your hand. How many of you have a lamb at home? You have a pet lamb. Is there anyone here? All right. I know some of us live a little out east, but no one here has a lamb. Okay. Lambs in the first century are very common. Today, we don't have lambs we have labradoodles, and I'm sorry that we do, all right? But uh, the first century, lambs were a thing. And so not common today. Let me walk you on a little journey about lambs, okay? The Assyrian Dictionary points out that in the in ancient Near East, the lamb was valued not only for its wool, uh, but also as a sacrificial animal. And a lot of people would give a lamb as a gift. And so today we don't do that, right? Thank you, Aunt Mary. You get me you know, that lamb every year, we don't do that. We give out gift cards and fruitcake, right? But back in the day, you'd give a lamb. Hey, I love you. You're a great uncle. Here's a lamb, right? And so we don't do that anymore. But when, when we think about a lamb, if you're taking note, I want you to really think about uh, primarily of, of first importance that a lamb is a very helpless, a very gentle animal, okay? Can we say gentle? Say gentle with me. Gentle. I want you to think about a gentle helpless, uh, harmless lamb, okay? Some of you, uh, a lamb is basically a baby sheep. And uh, many of you um, look at a puppy or a kitten, and uh, did you know they found that the same feeling you have when you see a little baby or a little puppy, a little kitten, it's the same feeling of aggression that you have when you have road rage. It's that same feeling. It's that same uh, emotion. So that's why when you show your kids puppies, they're like, oh, they get really mad, right? Not mad, but just intense. And so the funny thing is, though, with a kitten, they have claws. So as cute as that little kitten is, it can scratch you. Puppies have teeth, and they love to kind of bite on you. And so lambs are a little bit differently, okay? Lambs do not have really sharp teeth. They're flat. And they don't have sharp claws. They're kind of hooves, right? And a predator goes to attack the lamb. The lamb doesn't have barbed skin to protect itself. It has a pillow, right? And so as a predator is attacking, it's attacking a pillow. Uh, let me show you a few pictures of lambs just to manipulate you emotionally. Uh, here we go. Here's a, here's a little lamb smiling. Collective. Ah, oh, so cute. All right. Here's a lamb drinking from a milk bottle from an unsure sheepdog. Sheepdog's like, 
master, is this okay? Usually I corral these guys, but I'll feed them today. That's fine. All right, here are three lambs that are frolicking together. A little bit of irony here. They're wearing wool sweaters. Hey, I like your purple sweater. Thanks, it's my brother. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and finally, here's a lamb. I don't know if you knew this, but lambs are not particularly famous for this, but here's one levitating. It is a little secret that some of them can do. <laughs> okay, just think about this. Lambs are gentle. They're harmless. They're helpless. No one is scared of a lamb, right? There's no lamb therapy groups like, hey, how are you doing today? Well, I just have this reoccurring nightmare of this uh, lamb attacking me. No one has that. They don't have any mascots for sports teams like, hey, unfortunately, guys, we got to play the Lakeland Lambs this weekend, and I don't know if it's going to be a good thing, right? Taking the field, the ferocious lambs versus the Buccaneers. No. Uh, so I want you to primarily think of the lamb as a harmless, helpless, gentle animal. But I want to take you on a biblical journey. So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to turn to Genesis 3. If you have an app, I want you to swipe to Genesis 3. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 3. Ryan, as he read through the text and prayed, prayed uh, something that I want us to look at. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, uh, and we're going to look at four different lamb sacrifices in the Old Testament. Genesis 3. We're going to be around verse 21. Now, this is the first time an animal sacrifice is mentioned. It happens right after sin enters the world through the event we know as the fall. Remember, God created a world that's very good, a world without sin, without disease, without despair, without hurricanes, without androids, <clears throat> without traffic, right? <laughs> it's very good. And his one instruction is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam and the woman eat of the tree, and then sin enters the world. Now, prior to this, naked but not ashamed. And as soon as they eat, they're, aware, they're suddenly aware of their nakedness. And so God comes, and Adam, remember, tries to hide because of his nakedness, which sin always does, by the way. It always exposes us and shames us. And so God says, who told you that you were naked? Uh, did you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And then, and then Adam does what all bad husbands do, and he blames his wife. Right? It's the woman that you put here with me. And then God speaks to the woman, Eve, and she does what all bad wives do and blames someone outside of the home, right, and blames the devil. Uh, but listen, after the curse is pronounced, look at verse 21. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Tunics of skin. The ESV says garments of skin. Now, how do you get skin unless you skin something alive? God had to give them clothing from an animal that had been sacrificed, that had died. And I believe, as even Ryan prayed, it may have been, it probably was a lamb. We don't know that. The scripture doesn't say that. Very speculative, but it may have been a lamb. And so the first place we see God providing uh, an animal sacrifice is directly after the fall uh, in his grace and in his kindness. Now, stay in Genesis and turn over to Genesis 22. You guys good? Genesis 22, starting around verse 6. Genesis 22, 6. Here, God instructs Abraham, remember, I'm going to bless you with offspring and all the nations of the world will be blessed through your offspring. I'm going to change your name from exalted father to exalted father of many. And you only have one child at this point, right? This is, this is going to be interesting. And so finally, he has the son of the promise, Isaac. And then just when everything seems to be going well, God says, 
in Genesis 22, hey, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and sacrifice him. Bring him up on Mount Moriah and slay him. And so on their way up the mountain, Isaac makes a startling realization because he's seen his dad do this before. He's seen sacrifices made. So look at verse 6, Genesis 22, 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Here, he's going to lay this wood upon his son. You carry the wood. And then it says that he took the fire in his hand and a knife. So the father had the judgment. He had the fire. He had the knife. Those are the means of judgment. But the son had the wood. Interesting. Parallel. And the two of them went together. Uh, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, <clears throat> uh, my father, now dad. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood. We've done this before, dad. There's the fire and there's the wood. Uh, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What are we sacrificing, Dad? I'm, I'm not following you. And so it says in verse 8, Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. In the Hebrew, the construction of this phrase is very interesting. It almost can read this way. My son, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself uh, there's a lot of incredible parallels here, but the question of the Old Testament is really Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? I want to find the lamb. And we see that the son was sacrificed, uh, and yet the lamb wasn't really provided. Later they find uh, a ram in the thicket. It wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. And so the lamb has yet to be sacrificed. Um, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We don't turn a lot when we do Bible study here, uh, sermons, we try to stick to the text, but I think this is important. Look over at Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21, okay? Here, as you're getting there, Israel's in the midst of Egypt, and God is calling Moses to instruct Israel uh, before what we call the Passover. Remember, there's these different plagues, and finally, there's this kind of most awful plague of the death of all the firstborn, and so God instructs Moses, and then he in turn instructs the people. Look at verse 21. It says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Right? So what happens essentially after this is that in Israel, a lamb was slaughtered every morning and every evening and during special feasts and observances. But on each of the days of Passover, as they remembered this event, Remember, they, they spread the blood on the door, and the destroying angel passed over their home. That's where we get the phrase Passover. And as they celebrated this throughout the centuries, according to Numbers 28, they would sacrifice every day on the Passover uh, lambs. And so we know from back in John chapter 2 that the Passover is coming. 
And so what some commentators think is that as John is saying, behold the Lamb of God, that right then a group of lambs would have been walking by, possibly, on their way ascending to Jerusalem to be slaughtered in the temple for the Passover. Maybe that's happening at that exact moment, and everyone's looking at the cute lambs that you just awed about. And then John says, no, 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 there's the Lamb of God. Look, he is the Lamb. He's God's Lamb. Uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, if you're taking notes, says, our uh, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover lamb. But there's at least one more Old Testament reference to the lamb. Uh, if you know where Isaiah is, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And if you don't know where it is, uh, don't feel awkward. If you're sitting next to someone they can't find Isaiah, don't point them out. Okay? It's all right. Isaiah 53 starting in verse 7. Now, Israel was anticipating their Messiah. And one of the things they misunderstood was that he would be a sin-bearing servant who would suffer. But they did read Psalm 53, and in verse 7, the realization that their Messiah would be uh, someone who would be afflicted. And so uh, Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, he was led, look at this, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Israel anticipated their Messiah would be a sacrificial offering. The early church recognized Isaiah 53 as a description of Jesus. And so perhaps John had all of those pictures in mind when he says the lamb. Maybe he's picturing the lamb from Genesis that covers our shame. Maybe he's thinking about the lamb in Exodus that God himself uh, would provide, or in Genesis 22. Maybe from the Passover, the lamb whose blood would cover and protect us from destruction. Maybe he's thinking here of Isaiah 53 and the lamb who would be sacrificed going quietly and willingly. Uh, but turn with me back to John uh, chapter 1. John chapter 1. David Gusick says this on the screen. In this one sentence, John the Baptist summarized the greatest work of Jesus. What is that? To deal with the sin problem afflicting the human race. Every word of this sentence is important. So I know we're on our first point, but I want to look at this sentence very quickly um, with each line. So on the screen, here's the four ideas from this sentence that we're going to look at. Okay. Uh, first, he says, notice with me, uh, behold, behold. Now, there's a few different Greek words for look, right? Uh, John could have said the Greek word blepo, which basically means to notice. Like, hey, everybody, blepo, notice the lamb. Um, in fact, that's the word used in verse 29 when it says the next day he saw Jesus. That's the word blepo. He noticed him. He saw Jesus. But he doesn't use that word. Um, he could have used the Greek word horao, which means to observe, to look a little more distinctly. But he doesn't use either of the, these words. He uses the Greek word edo, which means to perceive, uh, to look with the intention of not taking your eyes off. And here's some other words that edo could be translated. Uh, behold, discern, distinguish, mark, mind, note, notice, observe, or perceive. In other words, you're not just taking a glance, taking a look, kind of like I'm going to observe. I'm deeply watching, and I'm not going to take my eyes off of him. But the word behold is used all throughout uh, the New Testament. Remember, Jesus began to weep, and they said, oh, behold how much he loved his friend Lazarus. They said, 
Edo. Look, at, look uh, pay attention. When Jesus stands before uh, Pilate and before the people, Pilate says, Edo the man, Edo that you're king, behold, pay attention, fix your eyes on him. But this is the first time Jesus is ultimately beheld as the Savior. Now, I got tricked this week on Facebook. <clears throat> uh, I was scrolling through my news feed, <laughs> and, which uh, neither is news nor is something that helps feed you, uh, at least with anything helpful. And there I am kind of scrolling through. Anybody get stuck on Facebook? Does this happen to you? Where you get kind of stuck in a Facebook hole where you're spending minutes or months? Does this happen to you? Am I the only one? All right, I'm the only one that this happens to. You're kind of scrolling, and the next thing you know, you're, you're caught up in it. And so I saw one of you, I don't know who it was, but don't raise your hand. Somebody this posted a video that said something like this. Uh, my son calls it clickbait, but basically it's like they have this incredible, insane title that makes you want to click on it. So it was something like, watch this. You won't believe what happens to this family in the middle of the night. Paranormal activity in kids' bedroom. Pay close attention. And so like a responsible adult, an adult who's mature and doesn't believe in paranormal activity, I clicked directly on it. <clears throat> And so, um, basically, you're watching the video, and it's black and white. It's a surveillance camera, and these sheets suddenly get pulled off of the bed. And what happened? How did that happen? These sheets are pulled off of the kid's bed, and the dad comes in and looks. And it rewound the video, and it said, it kind of zoomed in with an arrow and said, watch again. Watch what happens. I was like, what? And so I found myself leaning into the screen, leaning forward, watching what would happen. Well, then that's where I got, I got completely tricked, and this, like, ghost jumps up onto the screen with a scream. And I got to tell you, <laughs> thankfully, no one was around at that moment. But I screamed like a middle school girl at that point. All right, that was me right there. I was like, ah, absolute terror. All right, but you get the picture, right? That's the idea. You're watching, you're observing, you're leaning forward. I really want to, you can't take my eyes off this. I'm going to see this. I want to observe it. I want to behold it. Okay? And so at the height of John's influence in ministry, he points people away from himself and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So behold, we're to fix our eyes on him. Secondly, John calls our attention to the lamb, the lamb, not a lamb. He's the supreme lamb, the only lamb that God has provided to take away our sin. There is no other. He is God's lamb, sent from God as a gift, as it were, to us. He's the lamb of God. Notice thirdly, John says, he takes away. He takes away. The original word combines to bear and to take away. Jesus bears our sin, but in the sense that he bears them upon himself so that he may take our sin away from us. This signifies atonement by substitution. In the ceremonial law, there was a goat that you were to lay your hands on and pronounce the sins upon. And then there was a second goat. And the second goat was what we call the scapegoat. You were to lay the sins on that goat and send it away from Israel so it would just perish. It would be sent away. And many of us, we don't understand that God has, has forgiven us. He's taken away our sin, but he's also taken away sins that have been done to us. He's cast them as far as the east is from the west. He's taken our sin from us. By substitution, he's the lamb who takes away the sin. He doesn't just cover it. He completely cleanses us from it. And notice uh, that ultimately he says... This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the sin. Not the sins, uh, but the sin of the world, singular. The entire guilt of humanity is collected into one and placed upon Jesus. 
One person says this on the screen. He will give himself as the expiatory sacrifice, not only of the sins of his people, but of the germ of all sin in Adam's descendants, the sin of the world, the apostasy in Eden. Thus wide and deep is the Baptist's vision. This is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is a true and better lamb. The lamb in the garden, if it was a lamb, only covered your shame. But listen, Jesus removes our shame. He's a true and better lamb. He's a true and better Passover lamb. That lamb merely covered your family from physical death. But Jesus removes the sting of sin and death and forever conquers it, not just for a night. He's a true and better lamb in the temple, which merely covered a nation's sin for a time. And yet Jesus is the spotless lamb who does more than cover our sin. He removes it forever from us. This is the lamb that John recognized. Wow, that's one verse. Let's keep moving. Look at verse 30, and let's see the lamb veered. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, uh, if you're taking note, this is referring back to chapter 1, verse 15. All right? It's important to note that this was not when Jesus was baptized, right here. This is not when it happened. That would have been a little bit earlier in the story, and uh, the gospel writer, John, doesn't give us all the details of Jesus' baptism. Uh, you need to consult Matthew 3 or Mark 1 or Luke chapter 3 for those details. This is not that moment. Remember, right after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. So what we read here is right after this day, we'll see in two weeks, John the Baptist has two of his followers begin to follow Jesus, and then the day after that, and the day after that. And so this is a very important week, uh, but this is not the moment that Jesus is baptized, okay? I believe um, this, when he's writing this, is a short time after Jesus comes back on the scene. And so in verse 15 of chapter 1, John says, A man's coming who's preferred before me because he was before me. And so Jesus may have shown up on the scene after John, but he's preferred because he was preexistent before John. Does that make sense? A lot of us as the older say we're the more important uh, sibling. We're the oldest. We have the responsibility. We come first. And John says, yeah, I did come first, but I'm not the most important one. There's one who actually predates me. He predates creation in Israel. He's the one who was preexistent. That's Jesus. He's really the priority. He's really the preference because he's first. He's coming after me, but he's already been here all along. And so I wonder if you and I could say the same thing that John says in verse 30. Can we say that there comes a man who's preferred before me because he was before me? In other words, is Jesus preferred or preeminent in your life? When you and I go to make a decision, do we consider the preeminence of Christ in our life? See, that's why we use this phrase here at Shoreline, it's all about Jesus. That's not just something catchy that we want to copyright and put on T-shirts and bumper stickers. That's a way of life. It's the way of Jesus. It's all about him. And what does that mean practically? Well, it means for me and our family that when we go to make a decision about our kids' schooling next year, we're going to consider the preference, not of our convenience or our location or what's best for the kids. What, what's the preference of Jesus? What does Jesus want for our family? If I'm considering a car purchase or a home purchase, or a 70-inch TV purchase, but I know there's needs in the church, and I should be giving sacrificially and joyfully, well, then I'm going to think through my priorities, and I'm going to say, what's the priority of his church and, and Jesus in my marriage? 
I'm going to place the preeminence of Christ above my relationship, whether I'm married or I'm courting or I'm dating or I'm engaged. No, Jesus is the priority above my happiness, above my comfort. He's a higher priority than my pleasure or my safety. You know, I'm not asking Jesus to be my co-pilot or, heaven forbid, to take the wheel, okay? Jesus is not a crutch that I'm kind of leaning on, like I'm leaning on the back of you, Jesus. I know we sing that song from time to time. He's not just a crutch. I just need a crutch. Jesus is my crutch. No, Jesus is the crutch. He's the stretcher. He's the physician. He's the hospital. Uh, he's the, the healing balm, the recovery, the rehab, the physical therapist who's going to help me run the marathon. That's Jesus. He's not just a crutch. Uh, he's preeminent in all of my life, all of my discussions, all of my desires. Is this not what Paul said when he said to the Philippians in Philippians 121? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is is gain. See, if to live is not Christ, then to die is not gain, it's to lose. If, if for me to live is not Christ, then to die is loss. But Paul can say, I'm living for Christ, so if I die, I get to be with him. And anything in this world, uh, it's ultimately loss. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He's preferred. And so John says, no, I'm going to revere the lamb. The lamb is preferred before me because he preexisted before me. Look at verse 31, and we'll look at our third point here, the lamb revealed, the lamb revealed. Verse 31 says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, is that true, John? Hmm. You didn't know him? Well, we know John was Jesus's cousin, so certainly in the feasts and the gatherings together as a community, in the family, he would have known Jesus. He, He knows his cousin, but see, He knew who Jesus was. He didn't know what Jesus was. Does that make sense? He knew who Jesus was in relation to Mary and Joseph and the family, but he didn't know what Jesus was. He had a relationship with Jesus. He didn't know, though, that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And once he did, once he understood who Jesus was, everything changed. Uh, He says, that's what propelled me into ministry, looking for the servant of Isaiah 42 who would uh, be strong in the Spirit, who would come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And then at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks words of affirmation, and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon Jesus. And so John reflects back and says, that's when I realized that this is the Lamb of God. Look at verse 32 and 34, or through 34 at this testimony. John bore witness saying, I saw, so this is past tense, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, the Father, with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending, and then, of course, remaining. That's important. Remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John says, I've seen and testified. This is the Son of God. Other translations say the elect of God, the chosen one. He is the chosen one. He is the Son of God. And so when John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descend and remain on Jesus, that's when he realized this is him. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb. Uh, Last week, we learned uh, that we know who we are when we understand whose we are. Uh, When we know who Jesus is, then we know who we are. And I think that's so important. Once he understood, oh, this is who Jesus is, now I know my place in all of this. A student once asked uh, the medieval Franciscan teacher, Bonaventure, hey, why don't men love God more? And he answered, they don't love him because they don't know him. They don't know him. 
Oh, that we would know Jesus. John says, I've seen and I, I testify this is the Son of God. He's the one upon whom the Spirit descended and remained upon. And he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, uh, some schools of thought would be that's to be regenerated, to be made alive. You've received the Holy Spirit when you believed. Uh, to be cleansed, forgiven, made right, made new. Others would say, no, there's a second blessing where you receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you're uh, baptized afresh. And some would say, hey, pastor, do you believe in the second blessing? I would say, like, to just not get into theological arguments, I would say, I believe in the second blessing, the third blessing, the fourth blessing. The I need a blessing today. I need more baptism of the Holy Spirit. I need to be renewed and made new today. I need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit today. Uh, Ezekiel 36, a picture of the new covenant hinted at in Ezekiel, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The idea is that we are to be continually, as Paul told the Ephesians, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here is the lamb revealed. He's the one the spirit remains on. He'll baptize, he'll regenerate, and he'll empower the believer. Jesus is the lamb. Now, we would be remiss if we only understood Jesus as the lamb from the Old Testament. If that's all we did today, we'd be a little bit remiss in a full understanding of the lamb. Because later, this same writer, John, in Revelation, speaks about God's lamb, and he uses lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. Now, we closed our service last week with Revelation 5, and we were um, actually singing this morning, they were read again. Now, let me put them on the screen for you. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them, but notice with me, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb. He sees the lamb. He's looking for the lion, and he sees the lamb. In chapter 6 of Revelation, people are in terror, and they're fleeing for their lives and here's what they're afraid of. You can read it later. It says they're afraid of the wrath of the lamb. Didn't we just study this a, a minute ago? You guys were here for that. I showed you a levitating lamb. You saw how cute and how mild and helpless and harmless they are. And yet people are terrified and shrieking and hide. There's the lamb. What is going on here? What is happening? I thought the lamb was docile. Well, Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We just sang it. And also the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is perfectly authoritative, and yet he's atoning. Uh, he's mighty, and yet he's meek. He's all-powerful, and yet he's our propitiation. He's lion, but he's also lamb. If you're here today, like, now I want to be a mighty warrior. Yes, you can relate to that. You might be here today, and you're like, I just want to have compassion on people. You can relate to that. James Stewart, the Scottish theologian quoted by Ravi Zacharias on a recent podcast, I was so gripped, I'm driving, I'm like, I need to know who this guy is and look up this quote and share it with the, the church. This is a fascinating quote. It says the Scottish theologian, James Stewart, said, when I think of Jesus, I think of the mystery of divine personality, the startling coalescence of contrarities that I see in him. And here's the contrarities. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wed wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was 
half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was the dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. And then he goes on to say, he was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Wow. That's who we serve. That's the lamb. He's also the lion. Now, what does that mean for us as we prepare to close this morning? I'm going to invite the band forward. I, I believe that our application today comes from our three points. I don't know, Michael, if you can put that, that original outline back on the screen. But our closing application comes from uh, the three points of the outline. Uh, and that is to recognize the lamb, uh, to revere the lamb, and to reveal the lamb. Okay, so... First, this morning, we need to recognize who Jesus is and thus who we are. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. Has Jesus saved you? Yes or no? Has Jesus saved you? He came to save sinners. What does that make us? We're sinners. (laughs) Jesus is the redeemer. That means we're the redeemed. A A tourist was visiting a church in Germany, and he was surprised to look up at the top of a church's tower and see a carving of a lamb. And he asked someone locally, why is there a lamb at the top of the tower? And here's what the person told them. They said, well, when the tower was being built, one of the workmen fell from the scaffolding. He felt what they thought was to his death. And so the other workers rushed down uh, to try to um, see what the extent of the injuries were. And they expected him dead. But to their surprise, he was alive and only slightly injured. What had happened? This worker had fallen off of the tower, and a flock of sheep happened to be passing by at the exact time he fell. And he fell and basically landed on top of a lamb, and the lamb broke his fall, and the lamb was crushed to death, but the man was saved. And so to commemorate that miraculous escape, someone carved a lamb on the tower from the exact height from which the man fell. Today, do you know the lamb who was crushed, the lamb who was slain for you? Do you acknowledge today your need for a savior, your need for the true and better lamb? The hymn says, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. Do you recognize who the lamb is in your life? Secondly, we need to revere the lamb. We need to live our lives preferring Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Or are you merely asking Jesus to follow you? Who has the preeminence in your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? Jim Elliott said, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Wow. Can you say this morning, for me to live is Christ? You know, sometimes we'll have people raise their hand. Hey, rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe we should stop doing that. I'm going to rededicate my life. I'm going to try harder this time, Lord. Maybe we should stop that. And we should say, you know what? Instead of trying more, I'm going to just yield. 
I'm going to try less. I'm going to submit. I'm going to behold the lamb. I'm going to stop in my human attempt and wave the white flag of surrender and not put myself first, but yield to him. We need to revere the lamb. Finally, we must reveal the lamb. You know, God has given us such an amazing opportunity here at Shoreline to get the gospel out to as many people as will listen. Will you be the person that stands up and proclaims the gospel or shrink back out of fear? B.B. Warfield says, for let us never forget the gospel's not good advice, but good news. It does not come to us to make known to us what we must do to earn salvation for ourselves, but proclaim it us what Jesus has done to save us. It is salvation, a completed salvation, that it announces to us. And the burden of its message is the words that we began today. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're going to be partaking in communion together in a moment. You're going to receive two cups as we pass out the elements. On top, there's going to be a cup of juice and underneath that bread. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and coming to the table together as the family of God and know that his body was broken, his blood was poured out. He's our Passover lamb. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you just to abstain today and let the elements pass by. But this morning, if you'd bow your heads with me, the closing idea is Will you behold the Lamb? Will you stop looking to your own sufficiency and your own outwardness, your own abilities, your own failures? And will you just look to the Lamb, look to the Son, fix your eyes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? You may not feel that He's removed your sin, but the truth of the Scriptures in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How does he do that? He does that because Jesus has taken your place. Your sin, my sin, was put upon the lamb. And so while our heads are bowed, we're going to receive communion in just a moment, but I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for being our propitiation, our sacrifice. You took our sin in your body on the tree, and yet you have placed upon us in a great exchange your righteousness. And so when the Father looks at Jesus, he sees all of the sin that I've committed, and when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. Thank you for that. And Lord, if there's anyone here that does not yet know the saving mercy of God, the grace and the truth that came through Jesus Christ, would you illuminate them and regenerate them by your spirit and allow them to come into saving faith? If there's believers here that are stuck in their sin, help them to confess their sins and know that you're faithful and just to cleanse them and to forgive them. And help us, Lord, all of us to behold the Lamb, keep our eyes off of ourselves, but to fix them upon Jesus. We love you. We worship you. We receive these elements today as a family, and we put our trust not in ourselves, but back in the place that only deserves our trust, and that's upon Jesus. We love you, and we commit this time to you in your name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.